depreciating the monasteries. Many apparently innocent uses of the printing press were subversive because of their content. Merely the spread of knowledge of the fortunes to be earned by intrepid adventurers and merchants was itself a powerful solvent dissolving the bonds of feudal obligation. The temptation of new markets, along with the need and opportunity to fund armies and navies on a larger scale, gave money a value it had lacked in the feudal centuries. These new avenues for investment, reinforced by powerful weapons that raised the returns to violence, made it increasingly costly to the lord in the hinterlands or the merchant in the city to donate his capital to the church. Thus, the very creation of investment opportunities outside of landholdings destabilized the institutions of feudalism and undercut its ideology. Another subversive consequence of the printing press was its effect in dramatically lowering the costs of reproducing information. A crucial reason why literacy and economic progress had been so minimal during the Middle Ages was the high cost of duplicating manuscripts by hand. As we have seen, one of the major productive functions assumed by the Church after the fall of Rome was reproducing books and manuscripts in Benedictine monasteries. This was an extremely costly undertaking. One of the more dramatic consequences of printing was to devalue the scriptoria, where monks labored day after day, month after month, to produce manuscripts that could be duplicated in hours by printing presses. The new technology made the Benedictine scriptorium an obsolete and costly means of reproducing knowledge. This, in turn, made the religious orders and the church that sustained the scribes less economically important. Mass production of books ended the church's monopoly on scripture, as well as on other forms of information. The wider availability of books reduced the cost of literacy and thus multiplied the number of thinkers who were in a position to offer their own opinions on important subjects, particularly theological subjects. As theological historian Ewan Cameron put it, a series of publishing milestones in the first two decades of the 16th century set the groundwork for the application of modern text criticism to scriptures. This threatened the monopoly of the church by questioning corrupt readings of texts which had been used to support traditional dogmas. This new knowledge encouraged the emergence of competitive Protestant sects who sought to formulate their own interpretations of the Bible. Mass production of books lowered the cost of heresy and gave the heretics large audiences of readers. Publishing also helped destroy the medieval worldview. The greater availability and lower costs for information led to shifts away from a view of the world linked by symbolism rather than causal connections. Symbolism's image of the world is distinguished by impeccable order, architectonic structure, hierarchic subordination. For each symbolic connection implies a difference of rank or sanctity. The walnut signifies Christ. The sweet kernel is his divine nature. The green and pulpy outer peel is his humanity. The wooden shell between is the cross. Thus, all things raise the thoughts to the eternal. A symbolic mode of thinking not only complemented a hierarchic structure of society, it also suited illiteracy. Ideas conveyed by symbols in woodcuts were accessible to an illiterate population. 
By contrast, the advent of printing in the modern period led to the development of causal connections employing the scientific method for a literate population. A Parallel for Today Medieval society, seemingly so stable and secure in its beliefs in the middle of the 15th century, was rapidly transformed. Its predominant institution, the church, saw its monopoly challenged and shattered. Authority that had been unquestioned for centuries was suddenly in dispute. Beliefs and loyalties more sacred than those that bind any citizen to a nation-state today were reconsidered and renounced within a few short years, all because of a technological revolution that came into its own in the last decade of the 15th century. We believe that change as dramatic as that of 500 years ago will happen again. The information revolution will destroy the monopoly of power of the nation-state as surely as the gunpowder revolution destroyed the church's monopoly. There is a striking analogy between the situation at the end of the 15th century, when life had become thoroughly saturated by organized religion, and that of today, when the world has become saturated with politics. The church then, and the nation-state today, are both examples of institutions grown to a senile extreme— like the late medieval church, the nation-state at the end of the 20th century is a deeply indebted institution that can no longer pay its way. Its operations are ever more irrelevant and even counterproductive to the prosperity of those who not long ago might have been its staunchest supporters. Impoverished, Grasping, and Extravagant Just as government today offers poor value for the money it collects, so did the church at the end of the 15th century. As ecclesiastical historian Ewan Cameron put it, an impoverished local priesthood seemed to offer a poor service for the money it demanded. Much of what was levied effectively disappeared into enclosed monasteries or the arcane areas of higher education or administration. In spite of gifts prodigally given to some sectors of the church, the institution as a whole managed to appear simultaneously impoverished, grasping, and extravagant. It would be hard to deny the parallel with late 20th century government. Religious observances in the late 15th century grew like programs proliferating in welfare states today. Not only did special benedictions multiply endlessly— along with the supply of saints and saints' bones, but every year there were more churches, more convents, more monasteries, more friaries, more confessors, resident household priests, more preacherships, more cathedral chapters, more endowed chantries, more relic cults, more religious co-fraternities, more religious festivals, and new holy days. Services grew longer. Prayers and hymns grew more complicated. One after another, new mendicant orders appeared to beg for alms. The result was institutional overload similar to that characterizing heavily politicized societies today. Religious festivals and feast days proliferated on all sides. Religious services grew more numerous, with special festivals in honor of the seven sorrows of Mary, of her sisters, and of all the saints of Jesus' genealogy. For the faithful, to meet their religious obligations, became increasingly costly and burdensome, much as the costs of remaining within the law have proliferated today.
innocents pay. Then, as now, the productive bore a growing burden of income redistribution. These costs were rising more sharply than anyone in authority recognized because of a shift in the use of capital. The relative advantage of holding land, as compared to money capital, was falling. Yet the medieval mind continued to think in terms of a status-bound society, where social position was determined by who you were rather than by your skill in deploying capital effectively. Little or no consideration was given to the rising opportunity costs of staging exaggerated religious observances. These costs fell most heavily upon the more ambitious and hardworking peasants, burghers, and yeoman farmers who depended more than the aristocracy upon deploying their capital usefully. They were obliged to shoulder a disproportionate cost of outfitting the tables at the endless feasts and holy days, holidays, as well as paying to support an extravagant church bureaucracy. Counterproductive Regulation At the end of the 15th century, the church largely controlled the regulatory powers that have since been assumed by governments. The church dominated important areas of law, recording deeds, registering marriages, probating wills, licensing trades, titling land, and stipulating terms and conditions of commerce. The details of life were almost as thoroughly regulated by canon law as they are today by bureaucracy, and to much the same end. Just as political regulation today has become riddled with confusions and contradictions, so canon law was 500 years ago. These regulations often suppressed and complicated commerce in ways that revealed that facilitating productivity was far from the minds of the regulators. For example, it was forbidden to do business for an entire year on whatever day of the week the most recent 28th of December happened to fall. Thus, if it was a Tuesday, no legal business could be conducted on Tuesdays, as an obligatory expression of piety in honor of the slaughter of the innocents. On years when December 28th fell on any day other than Sunday, this injunction hampered the potential for many types of commerce, increasing costs by delaying transactions or forestalling them altogether. Monopoly Pricing Canon law was also imposed to reinforce monopoly prices. The church earned significant revenues from the sale of alum, mined from its properties in Tolfa, Italy. When some of its customers in the textile industry showed a preference for cheaper alum imported from Turkey, the Vatican attempted to sustain its monopoly pricing through canon law, declaring it sinful to use the less costly alum. Merchants who persisted in purchasing the cheaper Turkish product were excommunicated. The famous ban on eating meat on Friday originated in the same spirit. The church was not only the largest feudal landholder, it also held major fisheries. Church fathers discovered a theological necessity for the pious to eat fish, which not incidentally ensured a demand for their product at a time when transport and sanitary conditions discouraged fish consumption. Like the nation-state today, the late medieval church not only regulated specific industries to directly underpin its own interests, it also made the most of its regulatory powers to gain revenue for itself in other ways. 
Clerics went to special pains to promulgate regulations and edicts that were difficult to abide by. For example, incest was very broadly defined so that even remote cousins and persons related only by marriage required special dispensation from the church to marry. As this included almost everyone in many small European villages before the era of modern travel, selling waivers for incestuous marriages became a thriving source of church revenue. Even sex within marriage itself was tightly circumscribed by ecclesiastic regulation. Sexual relations between spouses were illegal on Sundays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, as well as for 40 days prior to Easter and Christmas. Further, couples were to abstain from sex for three days prior to receiving communion. In other words, married couples were forbidden to enjoy sex without an indulgence for a minimum of 55% of the days of the year. In the bishop's brothels, historian E.J. Burford suggests that these idiotic regulations of marriage helped stimulate the growth of medieval prostitution, from which the church profited mightily. Burford reports that the Bishop of Winchester was for many centuries the principal of London's bankside brothels in Southwark. Further, ecclesiastical profiteering from prostitution was by no means merely a local English affair. Pope Sixtus IV, circa 1471, who allegedly caught syphilis from one of his many mistresses, became the first pope to issue licenses to prostitutes and to levy a tax on their earnings augmenting vastly the papal revenues in the process. Indeed, the Roman Curia partly financed the building of St. Peter's by this tax and the sale of licenses. His successor, Pope Leo X, is said to have made some 22,000 gold ducats through the sale of licenses, four times as much as he made by selling indulgences in Germany. Even the famous rule of celibacy imposed on priests was a lucrative source of revenue for the medieval church. As Burford reports, the church imposed a racket known as culagium, a fee imposed upon concubinary priests. This proved so lucrative that it was imposed uniformly upon all priests by bishops in France and Germany, in spite of the fact that the Lateran Council in 1215 had denounced this disgraceful traffic by which such prelates regularly sell permission to sin. It was merely one of many lucrative markets for the sale of licenses to infringe canon law and regulation, a trade motivated by the same logic that impels grasping politicians to seek arbitrary regulatory powers over commerce. Indulgences The power to regulate arbitrarily is also the power to sell an exemption from the harm such regulations can do. The church sold permits, or indulgences, authorizing everything from relief, from petty burdens on commerce, to permission to eat dairy products in Lent, these indulgences were not only sold at high prices to the aristocracy and the rich burghers, they were also packaged as lottery prizes, much like the government-run lotteries of today to attract the pennies of the poor. The trade in indulgences increased as the church's expenditures outran its income. This led many to infer the obvious, that the institutional church was using its powers primarily to raise revenues. As a contemporary critic put it, 
Canon law was instituted solely for the purpose of making a great deal of money. Whoever would be a Christian has to buy his way out of its provisions. Bureaucratic Overload The costs of supporting institutionalized religion at the end of the 15th century had reached a historic extreme, much as the costs of supporting government have reached a senile extreme today. The more life was saturated with religion, the more expensive and bureaucratic the church became. In Cameron's words, it was far easier to find people to fill the vastly increased number of church posts at the end of the Middle Ages than to find money to pay for them. Just as bankrupt governments today scrounge for revenues in counterproductive ways, so did the church 500 years ago. Indeed, the churchmen used some of the same predatory tricks mastered by the politicians today. The medieval church, 500 years ago, like the nation-state today, consumed more of society's resources than it ever had before, or ever would again. The church then, like the state today, seemed incapable of functioning and sustaining itself on even record amounts of revenue. Just as the state has come to dominate late industrial economies, spending more than half of all revenue in some Western European countries, so the church dominated the late feudal economy, draining resources and retarding growth. Deficit Spending in the 15th Century The church resorted to every conceivable expedient to squeeze more money out of its charges to feed its overgrown bureaucracy. Regions directly under the lordship of the church were required to pay higher and higher taxes. In provinces and kingdoms where the church lacked direct taxing power, the Vatican imposed annates, a payment to be made by the local sovereign in lieu of direct ecclesiastic taxes. The church, like the state today, also raided its own coffers, diverting funds from benefactions earmarked for specific uses to pay for general overhead expenses. Benefices and venal religious offices were openly sold, as were the income streams from tithes. In effect, the interests in tithes became the ecclesiastic equivalent of bonds issued by modern governments to finance their chronic deficits. While the church was the ideological defender of feudalism and critic of commerce and capitalism, like the nation-state today, it utilized every available marketing technique to optimize its own revenues. The church operated a thriving business in the sale of sacramentals, including consecrated candles, palms blessed on Palm Sunday, herbs blessed on the Feast of the Assumption, and especially the varieties of holy water. Like today's politicians, who threaten constituents with curtailed garbage pickup and other indignities if they decline to pay higher taxes— Religious authorities in the 15th century were also prone to cutting off religious services to blackmail congregations into paying arbitrary fines. Often the fines were imposed for some petty offense done by a few persons who need not even have been members of the congregation in question. For example, in 1436, Bishop Jacques du Châtelier, a very ostentatious, grasping man, closed the Church of the Innocents in Paris for 22 days halting all religious services while waiting for an impossibly large fine to be paid by two beggars. The men had quarreled in the church and shed a few drops of blood, which the bishop claimed had deconsecrated the church. It would not allow anyone 
to use the church for weddings, burials, or the normal sacraments of the calendar until his fine was paid. The Italian stews to make the Pope good cheer paid 20,000 ducats in a year. Besides, they give a priest, to mend his fee, the profit of a whore, or two, or three. Methinks it must be a bad divinity that with the stews hath such affinity. 15th Century English Ballad Hatred of Church Leaders Little wonder that the common opinion of the late 15th century despised the higher and lower clergy, much as common opinion in highly politicized societies today despises the bureaucracy and politicians. As Johann Huizinga put it, hatred is the right word to use in this context, for hatred it was, latent, but general and persistent. The people never wearied of hearing the vices of the clergy arraigned. Part of the reason that people were commonly convinced that the church was grasping and extravagant is that it was true. The worldliness of the higher ranks of the clergy and the deterioration of the lower grades were too obvious to miss. From the parish priest to the pope himself, the clergy appeared to be corrupt, as only the personnel of a predominant institution can be. Five hundred years ago, the pope, Alexander VI, made even Giulio Andreotti and Bill Clinton seem like exemplars of integrity. Alexander VI was known for his wild parties. As a cardinal in Siena, he staged a famous orgy to which only Siena's most beautiful young women had been invited, but their husbands, fathers, and brothers had been excluded. The Siena orgy was famous but it later proved to be tame compared to those Alexander threw after becoming Pope. Perhaps the most lurid of those was the so-called Ballet of the Chestnuts, which involved Rome's 50 most beautiful whores in a copulation contest with the church fathers and other important Romans. As William Manchester describes it, Servants kept score of each man's orgasms, for the Pope greatly admired virility. After everyone was exhausted, His Holiness distributed prizes, cloaks, boots, caps, and fine silken tunics. The winners, the diarist wrote, were those who made love with those courtesans the greatest number of times. Alexander fathered at least seven, and perhaps eight, illegitimate children. One of his apparent sons, Giovanni, was the so-called Infans Romanus, born to Alexander's illegitimate daughter, Lucrezia Borgia, when she was 18. In a secret papal bull, Alexander admitted fathering Giovanni. If he was not the father, he was certainly the grandfather on both sides. The Pope was involved in a three-way incestuous affair with Lucrezia, who was also the mistress of Juan, Duke of Gandia, Alexander's oldest illegitimate son, as well as the mistress of another illegitimate son, Cardinal Cesare Borgia. Cesare was the prince of the church who served as Niccolo Machiavelli's inspiration for the prince. Cesare was a killer, as was the pope, who was known to have plotted several murders. One or the other of them apparently became jealous of Juan, whose lifeless body was fished out of the Tiber River on June 15, 1497. The leadership of the late medieval church was as corrupt as the leadership of the nation-state today.
Today I have twice become a father. God's blessing on it. Rodolphe Agricola, on hearing that his concubine had given birth to a son on the day he was elected abbot. Hypocrisy Beneath a superficial crust of piety, late medieval society was remarkably blasphemous, irreverent, and debauched. Churches were the favorite trysting places of young men and women, and frequent gathering spots of prostitutes and vendors of obscene pictures. Historians report that the irreverence of daily religious practice was almost unbounded. Choristers hired to chant for the souls of the dead commonly substituted profane words in the Mass. Vigils and processions, which played a far bigger role in medieval religious practice than they do today, were nonetheless disgraced by ribaldry, mockery, and drinking. So said late medieval Europe's leading theological authority, Denis the Carthusian. While such a report could be challenged as the griping of a stiff-lipped moralist, it is merely one of many accounts that paint the same picture. There is ample reason to believe that the body and the sacred were frequently close companions in medieval life. Pilgrimages, for example, so often degenerated into riot and debauchery that high-minded reformers argued without success that they be suppressed. Local religious processions also provided regular occasions for mobs to vandalize, loot, and generally indulge in whatever drunken antics caught their fancy. Even when people sat still to hear Mass, it was frequently not a sober experience. Prodigious quantities of wine were consumed in church, especially on festival nights. Accounts from the Council of Strasbourg show that those who watched in prayer on St. Adolphus' night drank 1,100 liters of wine provided by the council in honor of the saint. Jean Gerson, a leading 15th-century theologian, reports that the most sacred festivals, even Christmas night, were spent in debauchery, playing at cards, swearing, and blaspheming. When admonished for these lapses, the common people pled the example of the nobility and the clergy, who behave in like manner with impunity. Piety and Compassion the piety that rationalized the saturation of society by organized religion in the late Middle Ages served the same purpose as the compassion that is meant to justify the political domination of life today. The sale of indulgences to satisfy a desire for piety without morals parallels lavish welfare spending to slake the pretense of compassion without charity. It was largely immaterial whether the actual effect of received practices was to improve moral character or save souls, just as it is largely immaterial whether a welfare program actually improves the lives of the people to whom it is directed. Piety, like compassion, was an almost superstitious invocation. In a time when causal relationships were scarcely understood, rituals and sacraments of the church permeated every phase of life. A journey, a task, a visit were equally attended by a thousand formalities, benedictions, ceremonies, formulas. Prayers inscribed on pieces of parchment were strung like necklaces on those suffering from fevers. Malnourished girls draped locks of their hair in front of the image of St. Urban to prevent further hair loss. Peasants in Navarre marched in processions behind an image of St. Peter 
to solicit rain during droughts. People eagerly adopted these and other ineffective techniques to allay anxiety when effective ones were not available. Two wrongs to make a right. People were so firmly convinced of the miraculous qualities attaching to the relics of saints that the death of any notably pious person frequently occasioned a mad rush to divide up the body. After Thomas Aquinas died in the monastery of Fossa Nuova, the monks there decapitated and boiled his body in order to secure control of his bones. When St. Elizabeth of Hungary was lying in state, a crowd of worshippers came and cut or tore strips of the linen enveloping her face. They cut off the hair, the nails, even the nipples. Piety without virtue The medieval mind saw the saints and their relics as part of the arsenal of faith in a world that was colder in winter, darker at night, and more desperate in the face of disease than any listener of this book will have been likely to know. More emphatically than in the modern period, people in the Middle Ages believed that demons were real, that God actively intervened in the world, and that prayer, penance, and pilgrimages earned divine favor. To say simply that people believed in God could convey neither the intensity of their adherence nor the apparent ease with which medieval piety seemed to bed down with sin. Belief in the efficacy of rites, rituals, and sacraments was so pervasive that it perhaps inevitably undercut the urgency of behaving in a virtuous way. For any sin or spiritual defect, there was a remedy, a penance that would clear the slate in what came to be a mathematics of salvation. Religion became so all-pervasive that its sincerity necessarily began to flag. As Huizinga put it, Religion penetrating all relations in life means a constant blending of the spheres of holy and of profane thought. Holy things will become too common to be deeply felt. And so it was. Downsizing the Church By the end of the 15th century, the Church was not only as corrupt as the nation-state today, it was also a major drag on economic growth. The church engrossed large amounts of capital in unproductive ways, imposing burdens that limited the output of society and suppressed commerce. These burdens, like those imposed by the nation-state today, were numerous. We know what happened to organized religion in the wake of the gunpowder revolution. It created strong incentives to downsize religious institutions and lower their costs. When the traditional church declined to do this, Protestant sects seized the opportunity to compete. In so doing, they employed almost every device imaginable to reduce the cost of living a pious life. They built spare new churches and sometimes stripped the altars of older ones to free capital for other uses. They revised Christian doctrine in ways that lowered costs, emphasizing faith over good deeds as a key to salvation. They developed a new, terse liturgy, paired or eliminated feast days, and abolished numerous sacraments. They closed monasteries and nunneries, and stopped giving alms to mendicant orders. Poverty went from being an apostolic virtue to an unwelcome and often blameworthy social problem. To understand how downsizing the church liberated productivity, 
You have to review the many ways that the church stood in the way of growth before its monopoly was broken. Much as the nation-state does today, the church at the end of the 15th century imposed an incredible burden of excess costs. 1. Direct costs, such as tithes, taxes, and fees, fed the overgrown ecclesiastical bureaucracy. Tithes were common to Protestant churches that replaced the medieval Holy Mother Church also, but they tended not to be collectible in urban areas. In effect, the end of the church's monopoly led to declining marginal tax rates in regions with the most highly developed commerce. 2. Religious doctrines made saving difficult. The arch-villain of the medieval church was the miser, the person who saved his gold at the risk of his soul. The requirement for the faithful to fund good deeds entailed costly contributions to the church. The doctrine of satisfactions obliged those concerned about salvation to endow masses or chantries in order to avoid purgatory. Luther attacked this directly in the 8th and 13th of his 95 Theses. He wrote that the dying will pay all their debts by their death. In other words, the capital of the Protestant believer was able to pass on to his heirs. Under Protestant doctrine, there was no need to endow chantries to repeat masses, usually for thirty years, and sometimes, for the very wealthy, in perpetuity. 3. The ideology of the medieval church also encouraged diversion of capital into acquisition of relics. Numerous relic cults were endowed with large sums to acquire physical objects associated with Christ or various saints. The very wealthy even assembled personal collections of relics. For example, the elector Frederick of Saxony amassed a collection of 19,000 relics, some acquired on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1493. His collection included what he believed to be the body of a holy innocent, Mary's milk, and straw from the stable of the nativity. Presumably, the return on capital invested in these relics was low. The shift to an emphasis on faith and the notion of the elect downgraded the importance of acquisition of the trappings of Christian life for use as charms and encouraged money to find more productive channels that paid a return that the monarch could tap. 4. The advent of Protestant denominations broke the medieval church's economic monopolies and led to a significant weakening of regulation. As we have seen, canon law was frequently bent to support church monopolies and commercial interests. Because the new denominations had fewer economic interests to protect and promote, their version of religious doctrine tended to result in a freer system with fewer inhibitions of commerce. 5. The Protestant Revolution abolished many of the rites and rituals of the medieval church that burdened the time of the faithful. Rites, sacraments, and holy days had been elaborated to absorb almost the entire calendar by the late 15th century. This ceremonial overload was a logical outgrowth of the church's insistence that one could multiply acts of prayer or worship as often as one liked and gain benefits from them. Multiply they did. Productivity was taxed by longer and more elaborate services, obligations to recite repetitious prayers in penance, and the proliferation of feast days of saints during which no work could be done. 
Numerous regulations and ceremonies punctuated the day and the seasons, considerably shrinking the time available for productive tasks. This may have done little to interrupt the rhythms of medieval farming, in which 90% or more of the population was engaged. There were many periods during the seasons when field labor was not required on a daily basis. The yield of crops under medieval conditions probably varied more with the weather and uncontrollable rhythms of infestation than from any marginal addition of labor beyond the minimum that the church calendar accommodated. The larger problem of lost productivity did not fall so much in farming as in other areas. The church's demands on time were far less compatible with craftwork, manufacturing, transport, commerce, or any other undertaking where productivity and profitability were likely to be crucially determined by the amount of time devoted to the task. It may not be a coincidence that the great transition at the end of the 15th century occurred at a time when land rents were rising and real wages for the peasantry were in decline. Increased population pressures had reduced the yield from the common lands, often found surrounding rivers and streams upon which peasants depended to graze their livestock, and in some cases for fish and firewood. The whittling down of living standards placed increasingly urgent pressures on peasants to find alternative sources of income. As a result, more and more of the rural population turned to small-scale manufacturing for the market, above all in textiles, in the process known as putting out or proto-industrialization. The ceremonial burdens on time imposed by the church stood in the way of efforts by the more ambitious peasants to supplement their farming income by craftwork, as, indeed, they inhibited any redeployment of effort in new economic directions. One of the more pronounced contributions that Protestant sects made to productivity was the scrapping of 40 feast days. This not only saved the considerable costs of staging the festivals, including outfitting the village tables with food and drink, it also freed a great deal of valuable time. Implicitly, everyone who stopped honoring the 40 banished feast days could add 300 man-hours or more to his annual productivity. In short, the scrapping of ceremonial overload in the medieval church opened the way for an appreciable increase in output simply by freeing time that would otherwise have been lost to commerce. 6. The break in the church's monopoly disgorged vast amounts of assets that were yielding low returns under church management, a situation with obvious parallels to state holdings late in the 20th century. The church was the largest feudal landholder by far. Its grip on the land matched that of the state in highly politicized societies today, exceeding 50% of the total in some European countries, such as Bohemia. According to canon law, once a property came under the control of the church, it could not be alienated. Thus, the holdings of church land tended steadily to rise as the church received more and more testamentary gifts from the faithful for financing various social welfare services, chantries, and other activities. While it is difficult to measure precisely the relative productivity of church holdings, it must have been far lower at the end of the Middle Ages than it was in the early part of that epoch. By the 14th century, Increased emphasis upon production for the market rather than subsistence farming had led most laylords to turn from illiterate headmen to professional managers to optimize the output of their holdings. 
Their incentives probably led them to quickly outstrip the output of church properties, which, in theory, usually did not accrue to anyone's private profit. No doubt some of the more worldly prince-bishops husbanded their estates in ways indistinguishable from those of the laylords, yet the productivity of other church properties would surely have suffered from failures of indifferent management by a huge, far-flung institution whose drawbacks would have been similar to the drawbacks of state and communal ownership today. It is obvious, as well, that the seizure of the monasteries rearrayed resources that were no longer needed for the reproduction of books and manuscripts after the advent of the printing press. 7. As we detailed in The Great Reckoning, some of the Protestant sects immediately responded to the gunpowder revolution by altering their doctrines in ways that encouraged commerce, such as by lifting the injunction against usury or lending at interest. The ideological opposition of the medieval church to capitalism was a drag on growth. The main ideological thrust of church teachings was to reinforce feudalism, in which the church had a large stake as the largest feudal landholder. Consciously or not, the church tended to make religious virtues of its own economic interests, while militating against the development of manufacturing and independent commercial wealth that were destined to destabilize the feudal system. Injunctions against avarice, for example, applied mainly to commercial transactions rather than feudal levies, and never to the sale of indulgences. The infamous attempts by the church to fix a just price for items in commerce tended to suppress economic returns on those products and services where the church itself was not a producer. The ban on usury was a signal example of the church's resistance to commercial innovation. Banking and credit were crucial to the development of larger-scale commercial enterprises. By restricting the availability of credit, the church retarded growth. 8. More subtly, the new denomination's focus upon the Bible as a text helped demolish the medieval church's mode of thought as well as its ideology. Both placed obstacles in the way of growth. The cultural programming of the late Middle Ages encouraged people to see the world in terms of symbolic similitude rather than cause and effect. This short-circuited reasoning. It also pointed away from a mercantile conception of life. Thinking in terms of symbolic equivalences does not easily translate into thinking in terms of market values. The three estates represent the qualities of the virgin. The seven electors of the empire signify the virtues— the five towns of Artois and Hainaut, which in 1477 remained faithful to the House of Burgundy, are the five wise virgins. In the same way, shoes mean care and diligence, stockings, perseverance, the garter, resolution, etc. As this example quoted from the distinguished medieval historian Johann Huizinga suggests, thinking was dominated by dogma rigid symbols and allegory that tied together every aspect of life in terms of hierarchic subordination. Every occupation, every part, every color, every number, even every element of grammar was tied into a grand system of religious conceptions. Thus, the mundane bits and pieces of life were interpreted not in terms of their causal connections, but in terms of static symbols and allegories. Sometimes personifying virtues and vices, each thing stood for something, 
which stood for something else again, in ways that often blocked rather than clarified cause and effect. To confuse matters further, relationships were often arbitrarily bound together in systems of numbers. Sevens played a particularly important role. There were the seven virtues, the seven deadly sins, the seven supplications of the Lord's Prayer, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven moments of the Passion, the seven Beatitudes, and the seven sacraments, represented by the seven animals and followed by the seven diseases. Fifteenth-century journalism A fifteenth-century news story, if it had been written, would not have answered any of the classic questions of reporting facts, except indirectly through allegoric personification. Consider this report, in a private diary, of the Burgundian murders in 15th-century Paris. Then arose the goddess of discord, who lived in the tower of evil counsel, and awoke wrath, the madwoman, and covetousness, and rage, and vengeance, and they took up arms of all sorts, and cast out reason, justice, remembrance of God, and moderation most shamefully. Then madness them enraged, and murder and slaughter killed, cut down, put to death, massacred all they found in the prisons. And covetousness tucked up her skirts into her belt with rapine, her daughter, and larceny, her son. Afterward, the aforesaid people went by guidance of their goddesses, that is to say, wrath, covetousness, and vengeance, who led them through all the public prisons of Paris, etc. The shift away from the medieval paradigm helped prepare people to think in modern terms about cause and effect, rather than in terms of symbolic linkages and allegoric personification. It is not necessary to argue that the doctrine and mode of thinking of the late medieval church were insincere, to see that they tended to fit closely with the needs of agrarian feudalism, while allowing very little place for commerce, much less industrial development. It was rather a case of the church as a predominant institution shaping moral, cultural, and legal constraints in ways that were closely fitted to the imperatives of feudalism. For this very reason, they were ill-suited to the needs of industrial society, just as the moral, cultural, and legal constraints of the modern nation-state are ill-suited to facilitate commerce in the information age. We believe that the state will be revolutionized, just as the church was, to facilitate the realization of the new potential. The Protestant doctrine that heaven could be attained by faith alone and without the benefit of endowed prayers for the dead was cast as a theological issue. Yet it was theology to fit the economic realities of a new age. It met the obvious need for a more cost-effective path to salvation at a time when the opportunity costs of sinking additional capital into the bloated ecclesiastical bureaucracy had suddenly risen. People had minded less giving their money to the church when there was no other outlet for it. But when they suddenly saw the chance to make 100 times their capital financing a spice voyage to the east, or get a lesser but still promising sum of 40% per annum financing a battalion for the king, they understandably sought the grace of God where their own interests lay. Many merchants and other commoners soon became far richer than their forebears had been under feudalism. The sharp acceleration of living standards among the merchants and small manufacturers of the early modern period was widely unpopular among those whose incomes and way of life were collapsing with feudalism. 
the weakening of the church's monopoly, and the increased megapolitical power of the rich led to a sharp reduction in income redistribution. The peasants and urban poor, who were not immediate beneficiaries of the new system, were bitterly envious of those who were. Huizinga described the prevailing attitude in what could well be an important parallel with the information revolution. Hatred of rich people, especially of the new rich, who were then very numerous, is general. An equally striking parallel arose from a tremendous surge in crime. The breakdown of the old order almost always unleashes a surge in crime, if not the outright anarchy of the feudal revolution we explored in the last chapter. At the end of the Middle Ages, crime also skyrocketed as the old systems of social control broke down. In Huizinga's words, crime came to be regarded as a menace to order and society. It could be equally menacing in the future. The modern world was born in the confusion of new technologies, new ideas, and the stench of black powder. Gunpowder weapons and improved shipping destabilized the military foundation of feudalism, even as new communications technology undermined its ideology. Among the elements that the new technology of printing helped reveal was the corruption of the church, whose hierarchy, as well as rank and file, were already held in low regard by a society that, paradoxically, placed religion at the center of everything. It is a paradox with an obvious contemporary parallel in the disillusionment with politicians and bureaucrats in a society that places politics at the center of everything. The end of the 15th century was a time of disillusion, confusion, pessimism, and despair. A time much like now.